Today's episode of The Wire, Way Down in the Hole on the Ringer Podcast Network, is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and L.A., and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com backslash WCK to donate. Please, we're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com backslash WCK. Tell you this, I don't know shit about shit, but I do know this. Anybody who spend their time witnessing shit, you're going to get got. I know that sounds kind of harsh, but um, that's the way things go around here, officer. Welcome back, everybody, to Way Down in the Hole uh, with Jamel Hill. That would be me and Van Lathan. And we're here as we are continuously for the next, I don't know, 50 or so episodes, breaking down every single episode of The Wire in a way that it has never been broke. <laughs> so, yes, um, yes, breaking it down in a way so it can forever be broke, I should say. So going to jump right in by starting with just a brief recap of what happens in episode two, um, which is called The Detail, by the way. And here's a basic overview of what happens. All right, Reginald Gant, who was the witness, uh, he saw D'Angelo Barksdale kill old boy at the high risers. He's murdered. Um, and that's pretty much where this episode begins. And pretty much the rest of this episode is kind of the ripple effect that this has. That's the witness, all right. One from the Barksdale case. Gant William, 41 years, single headshot, close range, bullet pancake gun in her skull. Ain't necessarily what it looked like. No? Man's walking down the street in West Baltimore. That'll catch you a bullet for a half dozen reasons. Yeah, that it will. So you also have in this episode, the cops are starting um, to sweat D'Angelo a little bit about Gant being murdered. And another important part of this episode is the Avengers Assemble. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm. the Avengers Assemble. Unfortunately, though, they're not at a place as dope as the Stark headquarters or the lair that, uh, you know, um, Nick Fury had, that flying thing, whatever the fuck that was. Uh, the, heli- the helicarrier. Don't the talk helicarrier. that way about the shield helicarrier. Yeah. <laughs> My bad. The shield mm-hmm. helicarrier. It's not mm-hmm. that. It's, it's nowhere near that. It's, it's basically a shithole, um, right. which you see right away the priority that this has in this, um, you know, this investigation into the Barksdale, which has been kickstarted by McNulty running his fucking mouth. Mm-hmm. And so the Avengers assemble. Unfortunately, there is no Thor and there is no Black Widow. It's drunk one and drunk two. It's <laughs> uh, Hurt, uh, Hurt Carve, Lester Freeman, who at this point uh, has not, he shows he finally shows a pulse, I believe, 
in this episode, but he has not shown his pulse necessarily up to uh, this point. So it, it dawns on Lieutenant Daniels that he basically has got a bunch of fuck ups and he's got to figure out a way to make this shit work. So Van, let's just start off. Like what were some of your general observations about the detail episode two? This is where the wire really starts. The episode one is a place setting. It's getting you into the world, but really the dynamic that exists in the wire that's going to take you from this season all the way to the end has a lot to do not just with the police department uh, versus the Baltimore drug trade down there in West Baltimore. It has to do specifically with the major crime unit. The major crime unit uh, is the unit that runs the wire, that goes after the assets, that wraps all of these political figures into it. It is the way that we see the criminal enterprise that takes place uh, in West Baltimore. And this is the episode that um, establishes the major crime unit. This is where we meet all of the key players that are going to build this police family that will then expand and go different places. So you see that here and you see a little bit more into the organization of the Barksdales. Like we said in the last episode, D'Angelo is sort of our guys, our gaze, should I say, into the Barksdale world. And we're going to get even deeper into that world, really beginning here in episode two. And you're not just getting a deep look at what's going on with the Barksdale organization. You're getting a deep look into the police department itself, because mm. um, what leapt off the page to me in this episode is that you're understanding the politics that Lieutenant Daniels has to deal with in trying to basically solve crimes. You would think that this would be a, a relatively easy pursuit. My job as a police officer or in the police network is to help keep people safe and solve crimes. And uh -uh, shit ain't that simple. You know, mm. it's a lot of asses he has to kiss. It's a lot of horse trading he has to do, particularly as he tries to build this unit. Um, you know, and he also has to, on top of that, while trying to solve these crimes and have public safety as any kind of priority, make his bosses look good in the process. Right. So, I think we're, as you said, we're we're starting to see how both organizations, the complications, the intricacies, and frankly, all of the pitfalls, as well as exposing why each of these organizations is vulnerable to being taken down. Um, all of that is kind of on display here in episode two. And to your point, I'm about to pull what's called a Van Lathan special, it means I'm about to agree with you and disagree at the same time. That's called a Van Lathan special. Um, you're right. You do see the dysfunction in the police department, but you see that that dysfunction has an intentionality to it. So it's not like he couldn't solve the crimes. He was specifically really told not to. Think about it. When they detail, when, when they detail him, they give him humps, another term that we, that we got to learn. They give us a that, bunch that of humps. That was my favorite word in this whole episode was humps. Humps. They gave, they gave him a bunch of humps. And then they told him, uh, you know, buy bus, get some street rips, get this off the, uh, uh, the, the, the plate of the police department. The entire detail itself in major crimes was a crime because it was a waste of time. It really wasn't there to get Barksdale. And that's kind of when the, another key dynamic to the entire evolution of this series comes in, which is McNulty versus the bosses. You had seen a little bit of that in episode one, but here in this particular episode, as the dynamic between McNulty and Daniels begins to kind of take shape, 
you can see that he's inside and sees that they don't really want to do this case. And then that kind of starts him down this journey to where we know towards the end, he's going to do some really fucking insane shit to try to get over on the bosses. But it really, really kind of all starts in episode two. And you're also starting to see the different personalities that will become kind of staples in the wire. We're going to take a deeper look into McNulty in a minute, but you, as you just pointed out, you see the fact that McNulty, you know, is basically a rogue. I mean, he's just like, fuck the establishment. His deepest commitment is to Jimmy McNulty looking smart mm. and being right and and to his own arrogance. And you see somebody like Kima who, um, you know, for all intents and purposes of this show, is kind of like the moral compass of this show. You know, that's like her role. Uh, Herc and Carver are the fuck-ups, the comic relief, but they also are kind of a blanket caricature, I think, of what a lot of us imagine police officers to be like. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about what the what a cop's personality and what their makeup may be like, we think a lot about these two. You know, they're here. They're like, fuck critically thinking. You know, fuck trying to solve shit. They're here to bust some ass. That's literally it. They civil lawsuit one and two. That's them. <laughs> okay. I'm word. I mean, to be honest with you, Herc and Carver were the police officers that I knew growing up. In South Baton Rouge, you know, with, with Carver, Carver rolls up on you one day, Carver's cool. He rolls up on you on the next day. If if Herc is on one, you might have a problem on your hands. But for me, I, I see a lot of the cops uh, that I grew up with in them because you there were guys in the neighborhood that you knew they were out to make sure that everybody was safe and they were doing their jobs the best that they could every single day, a very hard job. Um, and you would see those guys. And then there were other guys that were really coming through, if I'm being honest, everyone who lived down their noses to see who they could fuck up. And that's a dichotomy that I'm sure people don't like to hear. Some people don't like to hear that, but that's kind of the deal. And that's kind of what Herc and Carver represented, not just then, but all throughout the series until they both get a little bit more responsibility and round out into fully formed characters. But it starts basically here, like you say. I would actually say of all the people we saw in every, and not, I think just about in every character, we saw evolution, either good or bad, right? But Herc was the one that stayed consistently terrible throughout all five seasons. Like, he was, to me, he was, he was, it's, it's like with uh, Power, right? Yeah. I could get down with Tommy because Tommy was the same fucking person in season right. one that he was at the end. There uh-huh. was no evolution in Tommy. He was what he was. Right. Herc is like literally the same way. It's like he was about the same shits in season one that he was about in five. He just had a different job title by the time he got to five. But uh-huh. he's still the same yeah. kind of insecure ass meathead that he's always been. Uh-huh. All right. So let's do a deep dive and talk about Jimmy McNulty. Ain't gonna put that one on me. He a witness. Pick that shit up off the ground, so don't be trying to push shit on me. Like, what do you think I'm about? Boy thinks I'm gonna dirty him. Mm. Like, I won't do it. Yeah, Western knockos come around here picking shit up off the ground, putting it on whoever you damn well please, man. Do I know you? Let's understand each other. I'm not Western District. I'm not a knocko. I don't dirty people because I don't give a shit about a possession charge. I'm a murder police. I'm here about the bodies. D'Angelo here knows that. He remembers me from the trial, right? I'm sitting in back there behind Stringer, watching, listening. Y'all hassling me about that shit? 
I thought you heard what the jury had to say. Oh, fuck the jury. Yeah, fuck the jury. This is just us talking, right? It's just you, me, my partner, and... What do you say your name was? I didn't say shit. Just you, me, my partner, Mr. Shit here. He is, even though I may talk shit about him, uh, he there is something immensely likable about his character. And it's just kind of funny because his penchant for self-destructive behavior is kind of beautiful to watch. Mm. <laughs> and I, I love this scene in, in this episode where they show him, um, you know, where he's waking up in his new apartment. And I was like, damn, man, I know college students that got their shit together better than your ass. <laughs> right. Look like a dorm. Right. I mean, it's not even a dorm. This motherfucker got like a full a full mattress, no headboard, just straight on the floor. with like take out, you know, everywhere. And like, he's just a fucking mess. And I was like, that right there is the snapshot of Jimmy McNulty. He's just a fucking mess. <laughs> yeah, he is. But listen, I look at that and that even tells something about his character right there. If you notice something about Jimmy, it's throughout most of the series, he continues to wear his wedding ring. There are things about Jimmy Minolte's character that aren't necessarily on the page of script, right? He was a guy who was doing all of this fucking up. He is, to me, the, the character that shows you that they the type of show that Simon and Burns wanted to make. Because it's very easy to write that character of McNulty as a do-gooder, uh, as somebody with a pure heart. But now nah, they write him in little gradations of fucked up, right? Like he's a terrible husband, but he still wants his family. He still wears the ring. That apartment that you're talking about, he's not trying to settle into that apartment because he wants the wife and the kids back. He wants it, but he can't handle it. And that's the main takeaway with everything with this character. He wants so many things he wants the big case. He wants all of these things. But as a functioning adult, he can't handle it. He can't do things the right way because he, like so many people, is talented, but in his own way at every step of the way. Yeah, that's probably the best way to describe him is that he's forever in his own way. Because even when he tries to do right, it still winds up him with him kind of fucking it up in a way. Like at the end of the day, like his motivation, unlike a lot of people that you see in this series, a lot of police officers in particular, he is motivated to actually achieve justice. It mm. may be kind of fucked up and warped in his own way, but he kind of wants to see that happen. And the problem is when it comes to figuring out the best way to achieve it, he just doesn't mind um, all the shit storms that he creates or he's just the person who like lets off the grenade and shocked that the bitch blows up. It's like, what did right. you think was going to happen? Mm. Like the moment he says something to Phelan, the judge who kickstarted this entire shitstorm and, and this entire hornet's nest, he made it seem like he couldn't see it coming exactly what came. And right. that he seemed to be trying to then play the victim when his name, every time there the judge mouths off about something or tries to put pressure on the police, he's just like, oh, but I, I keep my name out of it. It's like, no, your name's going to be in this forever because you started this shit. So, right. yeah. yeah, so I it's interesting to watch how he may have kind of a pure motive, but his motive, he inevitably corrupts all of his pure motives with his own, you know, kind of bullshit. Plus, he's also a bit of, I mean, he sulks. He's a bit of, he's not a whiner. I wouldn't say that about him, but he's definitely, I'm going to pick up and uh, pick up my ball and go home kind of dude. Absolutely. And you know what? I don't even know if he's motivated so much for the whole purity of finding justice. I think McNulty wants to win. I think he, he enjoys 
the challenge of being a good police, right? I think he, I don't think that Jimmy McNulty is the type of guy that would ever set up an after school program for the kids. You know, we've seen him get a little bit more into the community later on when he gets into his uniform. But I don't think Jimmy McNulty would be the, the type of person that would ever go out and go out of his way to affect any of the things that lead to some of the stuff that he sees. I think he likes the challenge. He likes trying to prove that he's the smartest guy. And in that, that's kind of what makes him uh, one of the best detectives in the show. Uh, at some point, I do want to rate the show based upon how good the detectives are because that's a big <laughs> argument. That's a big argument. Ooh, um, ooh, that's ooh, a big right. argument. I want to rate the detectives based upon how good they are. But I think, you know, when we first meet Jimmy, he's with Bunk and they have a very Ozzy and Harriet type relationship. That's the strongest marriage in all of The Wire. Hey, Bunk. Hmm? Vile for your thoughts. Ah, well, uh, I'm thinking it's one thing for one of you little terrorist niggas to shoot somebody in the lobby of the 221 building. You know, who gives a fuck? Right, but when you ace a witness... A working man? Who ain't even in the game. I think those guys look at crime going on in the same way. They want to figure out who did what, but they want to do it to prove how fucking dope they are at it. You think Bunk is actually somebody who is kind of committed to the altruistic motives of the job? Like, is he somebody that wants justice? Is he somebody that wants to see, you know, bad people be held accountable for doing bad things? So it's there, not entirely, but it's there. And there are a couple of examples throughout the show where it shows up. When Bunk is talking to Omar um, in a later season and the trade-off that Bunk gets from Omar, from what Omar does for him, is he said, no more bodies, don't kill any more people. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't ask for information. I think that's season four. He didn't ask for, for information from Omar. I mean, Omar helped him with the gun and stuff like that, but he didn't ask for anything. He asked Omar. Um, I can't remember exactly what was going on, behalf, but I remember him specifically asking Omar, no more bodies. Saying I could go back to the crib and bear up, find some things I fuck you want me to. You want me, motherfucker. I'm saying I know I do, man. And if you want to pay down any part of this day, you know what you got to do for me? No more bodies. No more fucking bodies from you. No more comebacks or get-evens on this. No more killing. The whole way he looked at the Tasha situation, the that you know, the member of Omar's crew, the girl that got killed, it shows you that Bunk cared on a different level than some of the other police officers were shown to have cared. Also, remember, you talk about the fact that, you know, Bunk and Omar had school together. They had gone to high school. Bunk was from a lot of those neighborhoods. Hey, man, I knew you from somewhere. Yeah. I was in Southwestern before I came to Homicide to work Frederick Road. Nah, I mean back in the day. Go to Edmondson, right? Yeah, he was ahead of me. I remember he was the first brother I ever seen play that sport with a stick. Uh, what's it called? Lacrosse, man. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was all Metro Attack. Prep school boys used to pee themselves when they see the old bunk coming at them, you know? <laughs> and so I think that he probably looked at the stuff that was going on at least a little bit differently. And you saw that come out. Very, very, very incredible performance. Uh, but and you saw that come out 
um, throughout different times in the series where with McNulty, you saw him care about different people, uh, but care about the actual crime sometimes. It sometimes was hard to connect his character to that. Yeah, I mean, and, and McNulty's two guardian angels, if you will, uh, at different times were Bunk and Kima because um, mm-hmm. they were the only two. And, and Freeman, uh, Lester Freeman to some extent, but Lester Freeman, I think as you discover, as you go along in this, is actually more like McNulty. You know, they're kind of the same. He may not be willing to go as far sometimes as McNulty does, but he's willing to go just about as far. And so they really are very similar in the sense that I think they want to win and they like being right. right. And um, so I, I, that's why at times they're, they seem like kind of brothers, kindred spirits, and other times they're probably at each other's throat. Right. And, you know, as, as the, in this episode, as they start to kind of lay the foundation for the McNulty-Daniels relationship, I find that one to also be interesting because of all the superiors that McNulty has had to answer to, Daniels is actually the closest one to being the type of boss that McNulty needs. And yet he constantly finds ways to shit on him and undermine him and basically um, insinuate to him repeatedly that Nobody gives a fuck the way Jim McNulty gives a fuck, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it, it, he could come off, at one moment, he could be kind of a, a, a big proponent of Lieutenant Daniels, and the next moment, he can literally be like his worst enemy. So it's just interesting seeing uh, the dynamics of, of their relationship, and especially knowing and understanding what it grows into. Yeah, I mean, McNulty is being McNulty, right? He's cool with Daniels as long as Daniels does exactly what he wants him to do, right? Daniels... You could probably believe. say that about a lot of people that are in his life, that he's yeah. good with you until you run counter to something he believes in, whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, and that has to do with arrogant people all over the place. Most arrogant people are are, are, are dope as long as you're helping them achieve their goal, right? But the minute you have a goal that's at cross-purposes with what they might be doing, now you fucked up in the game. And I think that Daniels is the character that runs directly counter to McNulty because he cares about the job. Of course, but he cares about it from a different perspective. Like Daniels cares about the nuts and bolts operation of the police department, right? He cares about the fact that you follow an order. He cares about the fact that you uh, file a correct report. He cares about the, and and when I say correct, I mean correct for the department. If Daniels has to cook something and lie, for, on the behalf of the Baltimore Police Department, he does that because that police department is his saving grace. So seeing one person, it's always good in any piece of fucking moving media to see one person who cares so much about something and another person who totally doesn't care. How do those two characters get on the same page? And that's kind of the beginning of that relationship that starts to come together uh, in the second episode. Yeah, so McNulty is a character that I know we we're, we're going to be revisiting a few times because there are there are just like there are the five stages of grief. There's the five stages of McNulty. Absolutely. And right now, this is because uh, I think at this point, him and his wife are just separated. They're not officially divorced, right? No, not so, yet. They don't get divorced until no. a little bit later. Yeah, until a little bit later. So this is separated, drunk, still kind of banging everything that moves, mm-hmm. McNulty with a cause. <laughs> this right. is this version of McNulty that we're getting uh, in, in this one. I think we should also keep account of, of McNulty and Bunk's blood alcohol level. 
And I'm going to say uh, this one because, because his blood alcohol level. I'm saying this one. I'm going to get my man close to a point two because he got shit faced in his car. Dude, oh, he got he was shit faced. Oh, yeah. And when he fell he down the grassy the hill. Fell yes. down the grassy hill when he saw the kids and he ran. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, I'm, that, yeah that's for, about a point to her. That's a, uh, I'm just, I'll give him a point one seven. You know, I'll, yeah. I'll be fair about it. <laughs> that's fucked know? up. I, I, I agree. He was pretty fucked up. This wasn't a, a as as drunk an episode for Bunk though. No, no, no cigars for Bunk either. Yeah, no cigars for Bunk. Bunk was off of his game, man. I don't know what the what was going on, but McNulty, the 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 amount of DUIs that McNulty has racks uh, racked up it, it, throughout the course of the wire, like McNulty is the king of the, he is the John Jones. Like McNulty, all he gets is just DUI after DUI after DUI. But yeah, I mean, obviously he doesn't get busted for any of them, but nobody in the world drives drunker than Jimmy than McNulty. Jimmy yeah, so, McNulty. Yeah, so every time you see him drunk, it's either in the bar or in the car. That's in the <laughs> bar or in the car. Come on, McNulty. He, he literally believes in drunk and in driving. Yeah, in this episode in general, there's no, Buck does not have a cigar. Bodie doesn't spit. And McNulty mm. actually, um, he does have, uh, he does have one, or he doesn't even have a body count in this one either. So this is, this is a, a rare trifecta of things that don't happen in the wire: no cigars, no spitting, uh, and no McNulty body count. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some of the great scenes that were in this. Uh, sure. To me, the best scene in episode two, in the detail, has got to be the McNugget scene. Yeah, it's got to. It's got to be the McNugget scene. So mm-hmm. setting the stage a little bit, Wallace, Poot, D'Angelo, they're on the old uh, orange couch that's just centered right there in the middle of the low risers. Headquarters. Uh, yes, their headquarters. Interesting tangent story about that, that couch. Uh, apparently, and this is information I got from Jonathan Abrams' book, um, which is called All Pieces, All the Pieces Matter, which is a complete inside story breakdown of the wire and one of the interesting stories that jonathan abrams tells in the book is about how they originally did find that couch in a project and they had it for the pilot episode and it accidentally they wound up losing it essentially and so they had to basically do a whole lot of shit to find a replica and they found a replica but it wasn't quite right so they had to send it off and get it upholstered Bottom line, what was basically free, a free project couch, they wound up fucking that up and had to go and spend way more money to recreate that project couch that they lost in the first place. And they didn't tell David Simon about it until way after the fact. I which want is, everybody to pay attention to that fucking story because what my co-host just described is fucking Hollywood. That is Hollywood. That is what you learn by being in this town. Now, obviously, that this show is filmed in Baltimore, but it's Hollywood motherfuckers making it. And there is not a better Hollywood story than a production overpaying in the end for some shit that was free. For some shit that was free. Like, you find a way to get behind schedule. You find a way to, to, to go over budget. That, my friends, is how the fuck you lose a couch. Like, like you know what I'm saying? Like, you, they lost a couch 
then bought well, another it, one. It, it got taken away because they didn't do anything to secure the couch because they had gotten this couch in the projects. And I don't know. Somebody wasn't thinking like, maybe this couch ain't going to be here the next time we're trying to film. Yeah. It's the fucking projects. Of course the, it won't be. Let me tell you something. That t- that lets me know as unique as a production of the, as, as this was, it was still a production. Finding, finding a way to pay for some free shit is peak Hollywood. Shout out to the, the creators <laughs> over there. It, it very much is. But in this scene, they ba- and this is what was so great about The Wire, is that they would take a topic that is seemingly an aid, and yet it's the best explanation of some real life shit you've ever heard. And essentially, this becomes a conversation, or what it's really about is kind of labor versus management. Exploitation. Or labor versus ownership. Right. Mm-hmm. That's basically what this breaks down to. So Wallace and Poot are eating some McNuggets, uh, on the couch, which is probably one of the most childlike things they've probably done this whole fucking <laughs> mm-hmm. this whole fucking first season, right? And Wallace is thinking about the dude who invented the chicken McNugget. As he put it so eloquently, he got the bone all the way out the chicken. Like he talked about that shit like it was Einstein. Like, yo, how did he figure out? He was like, niggas been around here eating drumsticks and wings and he figured out a way to get the bone all out the chicken. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is revolutionary to him. Man, whoever invented these, oh, he off the hook. What? Mm. Motherfucker got the bone all the way out the damn chicken. Till he came along, niggas been chewing on drumsticks and shit, getting their fingers all greasy. He said, later for the bone. Snuggle that meat up and make some real money. They surmise that because he has come up, the inventor, Mr. McNugget, has come up with this, that he has got to be rich. And D'Angelo steps in, as he often does in dealing with the youngest, to give them a life lesson to let him know that just because you invent some dope shit doesn't mean that you're getting paid off of it. It was a great explanation of, again, to me, the tension between being labor and being owner. You think the man got paid? Who? Man who invented these? Shit, you richer than a motherfucker. Why? You think you get a percentage? Why not? Nigga, please. The man who invented them things, just some sad ass down at the basement of McDonald's. Thinking of some shit to make some money for the real player. Nah, man, that ain't right. Fuck right. It ain't about right, it's about money. Now you think Ronald McDonald gonna go down that basement and say, hey, Mr. Nugget, you the bomb. We selling chicken faster than you can tear the bone out. So I'm gonna write my clowny ass name on this fat ass check for you. And the nigga who invented them things, still working in the basement for regular wage, thinking of some shit to make the fries taste better, some shit like that. Believe. Still have the idea, though. What I love about that scene is that that scene, it demonstrates to you how kids in the projects, in these communities, how they grow up quick. They don't grow up quick so much accidentally as they do on purpose. They give a very specific set of rules and a very specific worldview given to them, right? If you're a kid and, you, and you're and you 11 or 12 and you think that uh, either McDonald's gets McNuggets from a species of birds that has no bones or that there's some genius at McDonald's that yanked the bone out of a chicken and boom, 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 whatever, how, how Wallace looks at it, right? Eventually what happens to you is you learn in some way over time that that's not true, right? When you're in that particular situation with D'Angelo, 
with other people in the hood, they give you the real fucking world. Grow the fuck up. That's not how that is. Like, you're not, you're not around here being able to think childish, childlike thoughts. What really happens is there's a dude somewhere that made something and McDonald's came along and fucking took it. And that same guy is probably figuring out something. That, and we all know as adults that that is probably the reality. You don't get a billion dollars for, for, for inventing the Mighty Wings. Or like, or you, you don't. So, yo, real, so, real, real talk. The mighty wings was good as hell. Hitting. Don't give a fuck hitting. what y'all say. Snap y'all it. say whatever the fuck you want to say to me. Hitting. I don't know why McDonald's got rid of the mighty wings off the chain. Used to get them all the time. But, uh, but you know, they need you to grow up and see the world as there's a there's gonna be a scene coming later where Bodie sees uh, Wallace playing with a toy. And when Bodhi sees Wallace playing with a toy, his reaction to that is so severe. He needs a man out there and you need to think grown up thoughts. And so D'Angelo was always trying to school him. That's an, I think another good scene for me, as I'm not, that's clearly the best scene of this episode. I can't, I can't even come in. But there's one other scene that I really love. Two actually, but one, if I had to pick, that I really love. And that is the D'Angelo interrogation scene. I mean, the thing of it is, I can't see any reason for that man to be dead. I can't. I mean, hell, you beat us in court. We don't take it personal. Fuck no. We get paid either way. It's not like he did anything real bad. Throwing a couple of hot ones at Pooh Blanchard. I mean, no one's gonna miss that motherfucker, right? But you know the man who got killed this time? You know what that poor son of a bitch was? A citizen. Worked every goddamn day of his life. You know that? He would get up every day, go out, and do maintenance work. Then on the weekends, he was driving a cab out to the airport. Two jobs. And he volunteers what little time he has left at his church. Church going man. A Bethel man. A deacon. Two jobs and three kids. Did you know that? Three kids. Young, too. Five, eight, 11. Crying their little orphan asses to sleep over this shit because they lost their mama some years ago. And now they out there on their own. The, the, the interrogation of D'Angelo Barksdale um, is an amazing scene for a couple of reasons. Number one, you fir- it's the first time that you get a real glimpse into just how emotional, sensitive, and layered character he is. He, he's not ju- he doesn't just care about what happens to people. He's moved by it. He's disturbed by some of the realities that he's been living around for a long, long time. And it weighs very, very heavily on not just his conscience, but on his spirit. And something else happens in that scene that's really interesting. He surprises McNulty. Remember, they've picked up people for years. They've picked up kids for years. Bunk and McNulty have done interrogations like this for years. And when they start pushing on D'Angelo, they don't get somebody that's like, damn. They get a reaction that reads in McNulty's face like, yo, what's going on here? Is this kid okay? And it's just, it's a very, very human moment where it seems like people are maybe to a small degree, understanding that there's some decency in in whatever way that it's been compartmentalized out on them streets. 
And D'Angelo represents that. He does something so fucking stupid in that scene that we're going to talk about it later that I, I, I just, it's the fucking dumbest thing I've ever seen in a TV show, to be honest with you. But that scene right there is a brilliant scene to me. It just says so much about the show. So am I guessing that uh, this might be part of your we love this show, but? Yeah, that's going to be yeah. my we love this show, but. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because that was mine as well. Because I know exactly where you're going with that. Brilliant scene. I think you also get to see that at their best, how good of a detectives McNulty and Bonk are and what makes their chemistry chemistry special. The way they play off one another. The fact that (laughs) Bonk goes and gets pictures of his own kids. His his kids. His his kids. And he lies to D'Angelo and says that these are Reginald Gant's children. I mean, they pour that shit on thick uh, and my favorite line was when Buck he looks at D'Angelo with such disdain and he goes so fuck the working man that shit just don't count <laughs> and, he, and D'Angelo is looking like completely horrified yeah, I'm, I'm sorry for the man but I ain't got nothing to say you sorry you sorry for him you fucking killed the man no yes you did I mean we don't think that you uh, you know shot him or anything but if you weren't so busy lighting folks up in the high-rise lobby, he ain't coming out of the elevator and seeing it happen. You don't see anything. He doesn't testify. He doesn't testify. Those kids have still got a daddy to lean on. Well, why he testify? How the fuck should we know? Well, he ain't had to testify. No, he didn't, but he did. And you still beat the charge, didn't you? Yeah, but that wasn't enough, was it? It's not enough to beat the murder. They gotta send a cold message to everyone on the terrace. Fuck the working man. Fuck his kids. That shit don't count. I definitely agree that it shows kind of the layers of D'Angelo's character and what he brings to the table. And even every time he he schools the youngins, it's like it shows that, I mean, he really does care in a way he probably shouldn't be caring. But unfortunately, he's also building the case for why he's the weak link in the in the organization. It's that oh, without a doubt, you can't be showing that level of humanity doing the job that he does. And it's like, man you know, for some of the qualities, he possesses equal amount of qualities that make him great at being somebody to run uh, the low rises, but also a lot of qualities that make him so not suited for this life. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, he lives in a situation where decency can can get you killed. And when I say decency, I mean, you know, cutting somebody a break, you know, not not flexing on someone, uh, showing a little bit uh, of compassion for someone and no and like like when you're in the jungle man there is no compassion lions eat and that's and if you're going to be in a situation like that you have to choose it sounds so stupid and so cliche but in a lot of times in situations like this it's kill or be killed eat or be eaten um and you have to make those decisions really early on the last thing I'll just say really quickly is I just love bubbles in the hats I just love the way Bubbles. Hey, Bubbles got so much game. I give you know what I give you all the credit because you made this call the last episode. You said well, I forgot what you called him in terms of CIs, but he's like basically the Tony Stark of CIs. Yeah. <laughs> he is like the fucking the CE is the the best CI in all time in television history. <laughs> he's not just a snitch. He an innovator. He got like it's not it's not just like he's not just a snitch. Well, he did it. He did it. He did it. That's basic snitching. Bubs runs snitch. He's got snitch games. He's like got snitch methodology. And the hats is just so amazing, man. I'm telling you, everybody out there, they rude the day you fuck with bubbles, man. Don't fuck with bubbles. Yeah. And again, it's amazing what kind of sets this whole, 
not just this series, but these storylines into motion. So the whole reason that Bubs becomes leading informant of all time is they beat up his boy. Mm-hmm. And he decides to commit that sh- commit to his snitching in a totally different and organized way because he wants justice for his boy. I love it when McNulty hands him, I think it was a $20 bill. And Kima was just, uh, ah! she was appalled. Because mm-hmm. she's like, you can't be giving him that much money. And he's like, I respect the work. And how could yeah. you not? He basically thinks like a detective. Yeah. And he's figured shit out. $20. You're going to spoil him with that shit. I respect the work. That, but that show you right there that Jimmy know that Jimmy know being the projects man. If you want him to come back to work on Monday, maybe you keep you that to give a him five. Twenty dog. You give him twenty, he might be out of here, man. That might be a little <laughs> bit too much. <laughs> so yeah, uh, but I, I love that scene as well, and it just kind of shows that Jimmy likes other people who have that little spark of genius that he has. Well, since we were we already addressed the topic, we might as well throw it out there. Since I feel like we got the same thing, mm-hmm. we love this show, but. I, I love this show, but ain't nobody writing no letter to nobody family. See, I'm saying, like, like you know, what I'm saying, I, I, like, I, like, you know, I, I love this show, but ain't nobody writing no letter to nobody family if they get jammed up. Like, if you out there and you've been out there that long, ain't no fucking way. And I'm talking about specifically, so you guys know, in the interrogation scene, Bunk and McNulty they convinced D'Angelo Barksdale to write a letter to Reginald Gant's family to talk about how sorry he is that they lost their dad, right? So I want y'all to understand this. So D'Angelo was on trial for his life. It's a murder trial. The most fucking significant, serious shit that you can do. Gant testifies as a witness. Gant gets killed. The defendant in the murder case is writing a letter. Writing a letter to the family of a witness who was killed. There is no who's a part of a criminal operation, there is no fucking way that that would ever happen. You, the only way that that would ever happen is if they have you cold on something else and they tell you to write it uh, to, 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 even in that situation. I, I, I just, like, I, even with the first time I watched this, I'm like, yo, why is he, and really, if you go back to your, your guys with that situation, they might fucking kill you which probably would have happened to D'Angelo had he not been the nephew of the top man. Like, why are you putting shit on paper? That would never, ever happen. That is my, not only my, we love this show, but it's also my worst reputation, worst representation of real life. Totally. I mean, it was, it's funny because the, the first couple of times I've seen The Wire, I don't know why that didn't jump out to me, but as I'm watching it this time, I was just like, wait a minute, hold up. You want us to believe that somebody who had just been through a murder trial, who's been through this level of interrogation, you would assume, a part of a criminal a criminal enterprise would not have the common sense to know you don't write a fucking letter. Like mm-hmm. even saying that you sorry can be used against you. Now, I don't expect I've seen enough episodes of First 48 to know it ain't exactly no uh, scientists in these damn interrogation rooms. I get that. Yeah, yeah. But he should at this point have been so accustomed to being pressured by the police that he really should never have been in that situation and i just thought that that was like even for this show i just thought that was a bit of a stretch to accept that he would be that damn gullible and stupid to do something like that which by the way (laughs) leads to 
Um, what because I, I I'm realizing more often than not that in the wire they had um these sort of sometimes intentionally and unintentionally racist moments that just happen. Mm-hmm. And what happens right when D'Angelo uh so uh Levy, who is the attorney for prominent drug dealers in Baltimore, of course, you know, he comes down there to get D'Angelo out of the shit he has gotten himself into that he, you know, is self-sabotage, basically self-inflicted wound here. And he's just like, stop writing that shit. You know, let's go. And as they're leaving, he smacks him upside the back of the head. You want to talk another about something? We love this show, uh, but... Uh, another we thing. We love this show, but... Uh, another, another thing. He... Uh, Levy hit him in front of the whole fucking precinct. Dog, what are we A talking drug dealer. about? <laughs> A drug dealer. He smacked him. He upside the back of his head. He smacked yeah. him upside the back of his head in front of everyone and D'Angelo, all right, bro, I guess, look, you know what's crazy? We're going to do this whole thing and then either Simon or Burns is going to hear this and be like, well, actually, back in 1989, <laughs> we did get a letter and I'll tell you how we got it. You know what I'm saying? So, like, so it, it, I get it, but no, you're right about that. The hitting is one thing. But then, to make it even worse, Levy drops a you people on him. That's my unintentionally racist moment. He says, do I have to tell you people the same fucking thing? Now, yes, you can argue him at you people as in you drug dealers. That's what I'm going to argue. I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe... He, you I'm, can argue that. I, 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 you I, can definitely argue. But you think you <laughs> but think I feel he like it was people. a du- I feel like it was a double you people. It you was like, like you was black a, people. He double you people. But see, he double look, you people them. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you why I can't believe that I'm arguing. I can't... This is never... I'm arguing oh against God. the you people. I know. Just don't tell Twitter. <laughs> but you just wear a MAGA hat, man. Yeah, shut the fuck up. Like, don't, 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 don't tell Twitter. But look, here's the here's the reason why I don't think it was that type of a you people. Seriously. Number one, two, two reasons. Number one, Levy works for them. And if Levy go around throwing away subtle you peoples and you know, asking people about their credit score and all kinds of stuff like that, then it might get to a situation where he could possibly lose a job. I don't think Levy would even do anything that would come off as racist because he's making millions of dollars off various drug dealer type of guys. I thought about the you people because when we got in this category, you know, the the, the N-word with the hard ER that Rawls dropped, you know, that speaks for itself, you know. Or anytime somebody gets called a yo, shout out to the movie Clockers, by the way, because I did not know that a yo, yo could be used as a, uh, as a, a racial slur until Clockers. These project yo's and then Harvey Cartel saying it. But in this particular scene, I don't think he meant it in the you people way. I think he meant it in the drug dealer way, which could still be linked to living in the projects, which a roundabout way could be linked to being higher chance that you're black. So it still could be racist, but I don't think that he meant it in the racist you people way. So the only reason why I'm willing to, why I am making it a double you people is that I definitely think he meant it in the sense of like, I'm always talking to you fucking drug dealers about it. But the thing is, he considered, even though he's making millions off of them and they built his practice, as we learn more about him, he has no respect for them whatsoever. Not like because he's on some moral stance, but he considers them to be dumbasses who give him his money for shit that basically problems they create out of a lack of common sense. And he's happy to take all their money, but he essentially considers this segment, these lot of people to be stupid. 
So that's why I said I think it was a W people, but to smack it, but combined with smacking a black man upside the head in the, the middle smack. of the police department. Come on, man. The he ain't getting that pass. Look, I'm not saying that Levy is not racist. I'm not saying that. I don't know Levy. You know what I'm saying? I never met the man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not saying that Levy. I'm saying he, I don't think he would ever show it. I, I don't think he would ever demonstrate it. Now, I don't think he would have done that to Avon. Like, if Avon had oh, been in what? that... Like, he would have never done He would never done huh? that. He what wouldn't have done it? that to, to Marlo, was... to Stringer. Like, he never would do it. No, but, I mean, he's not smacking... I don't think he would have smacked Bodie. Bodie would have opened up his ass in front of everybody in the motherfucking police. But, you know, anyway. But now, nah, I get it. I'm just, for the first time, don't, y'all, don't come at me. I'm just saying, in this particular time, that's a little You give him some grace with this, you people. A little All right. bit. A little bit. So you know who I give no grace to? I told you it was one moment every fucking episode that I called the Stringer Bell fuckboy alert. <laughs> Big, huge fuckboy alert happens in this episode. Fan, do you okay. know what that fuckboy alertness was? No, this is me. what happens. This is when we realize the oh, plot to nab D'Angelo's baby uh, mama was yeah. in effect before yeah. he went to jail. Yeah. Community party, Avon. Yeah. Who the twirl. fuck twirls somebody's baby mama around in front of him? What's up, baby? That's your uncle? Yeah. Thought he looked different. My oh, man, G. What's up, man? Hey, what's up? Hey, come on. This, this the little man? Ooh. Yo. You see how shorty favor your, <laughs> your nephew? <laughs> <laughs> what's up, little man? You ain't gonna be able to deny that child. Right. You wanna come to me? Get him. Okay. You know who trying to come to me? Been napping. Oh, yeah? Just woke up. You got a grip? Let me see your grip. All right, Jeanette, don't give us a 12. Let's take a look. What? Not that long. What you looking at? Hey, go fix her hot plate. Mad flirting. Looking all twirl. at her ass. Yeah. Fuck boy. Fuck yeah. boy. Yeah. yeah, I did. I do remember that. Do a little twirl. I have questions about that scene, too, by the way. Um, Yeah, he says do a little twirl, and then he gets at her, and it's kind of like... And then they go sneak off and get some food, right? Yeah, yeah. Because he takes her to get some food. See what I'm saying? And see, I I, I wonder about stuff like that, right? So there's two different ways I look at shit that develops plot-wise over the course. I I, I look at it through like the lens of uh, The Empire Strikes Back. I wonder, and this is a great point of contention amongst Star Wars fans, I don't think that George Lucas, I don't think that he knew that Skywalker, okay? I think the, 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 the Luke, you are my father thing, or Luke, I am your father thing, or I am your father, I think that was one day George Lucas was like, let me really fuck their heads up now. You know what I'm saying? Like, let me really fuck these motherfuckers up. Watch this. Watch this. You hate him? Aha. He's his dad. Ah, now what? You know what I'm saying? And so I wonder, I look at movies like that when stuff happens down the line. I wonder about this particular scene, and you guys never thought you'd be listening to a podcast where I could connect Star Wars to the wire, but I can. I appreciate Um, the nerdy. Yeah. I I wonder about this particular scene, whether or not the twirling of her was something that they put in that scene to foreshadow the fact that they would end up in a sort of relationship together, or does it does it look like to me like I feel like the George Lucas kind of construct to where they go, you know what? We need something to take her mind away. You did twirl it at one time, so let's go ahead and make them fuck. You know what I'm saying? So like I, I wonder about that because now we're watching the series looking 
backwards. And this relationship doesn't start, I think, until next season. Um, yeah, I'm actually sure because D'Angelo is in jail. So it doesn't start until next season. So I kind of wonder uh, how that goes or what do you think about that? You think that's something that they were foreshadowing or it's something that they just came back to? I mean, it, it definitely is a file away for later moment to me, as well as being more evidence, mounting evidence that Stringer Bell was ultimately a fuckboy is because I think it was a purposeful plant in a way. It mm. was kind of a, a, like when you deconstruct the scene, it is like Ava, it, it was kind of out of left field and to the point like, whoa, did he just because, you know, thinking about that in real life context, it was such an obvious flirt move and it went. It just happened and it went unaddressed. Like, I just can't see too many dudes being cool with that. With somebody twirling their woman around, clearly if looking at family, her ass. If it's family. But, but, so, so, but, but Stringer, so, but Stringer ain't family, I know, though. I know. If he, it's family. He like, drug if you, dealer family, but he ain't family family. Right. If you bring your girls to a situation, right, and I've seen this happen before. And by the way, dudes, dudes respond to this a lot differently depending on who the dude is. If you bring your girl to a situation, you might have one of them uncles going up to her. I'm like, oh, okay. Hey. I can see that. I can right. see that. But Stringer's a little bit close to your, too close to your age. He's a little too tall. You know what I'm saying? He got bedroom eyes. I'm going to be like, hey, bro. <laughs> Come on. Hey, Uncle Avon, chill. I know you want to talk to me about something, but I got to address this guy. What's wrong with you? What's, my guy, what's going on? Like, You know what I mean? Well, something else about that scene. Had Donette never met Avon before? She points no. to him. Yes, and she said, How? I can't... Because, and then, wait, hold up. But even that is, that is, because there's a whole other conversation we can have about the women in the wire that is like, <laughs> it's unbelievable, mm. right? Because some of the women characters are some of like the worst people ever. Um, I don't think, it, no no one's ever beaten name as mom, like ever. But that's besides the Bad. point. So yeah. she was a, a brutally ho- awful person. But even, even old girl, for her to point out like, that's your uncle, she just said as a, she said it like, Wow, that's your uncle? A little younger than I thought. A little maybe more good looking than I thought. Like, mm. she says it as like she's scoping too. So in that scene, I think it's dual plotting happening where she's peeping the room. She sees like, all right, D'Angelo got a little juice. He got a little power. But yo, that uncle, he got all the power. And for that matter, his partner, Stringer, he got a lot of power too. So she already in her mind, the level up is happening. The level so, up's happening. But how is it that, and it's interesting, how is it that they had gone, like that baby is like almost a year old at this point, right? right? So how did they go this time of fucking around with each other, of talking to each other, of doing all of that, then they have a kid, that, and she had never ever met or even seen Avon before. Was that family get together right there? The first one that Avon had ever come to? Was it the first time that they had ever had it? It was the first one that she had come to, like... How is it that she had never seen? I know Avon kept it a little bit away from everything, but he looked like he was having a good time fucking making the food back in the kitchen with the apron on and stuff. So I just wonder about why she would have never seen him before. And every time I rewatch, that kind of jumps out at me. Like, oh, that's your uncle? Like, it it seems like she would at least know, she would know, being that she's basically a part of everything, what Avon looked like. But also could be, this is just how uh, clandestine, you know, Avon was. This is just how deep, deep cover he kept it, that even his nephew's baby's mom, who had been around for a while, still couldn't put a, a name to the face. Yeah, another um, scene uh, that winds up being significant that I just thought of that we, we shouldn't overlook is, of course, um, 
when Dumb and Dumber, or as I call them, civil lawsuits one and two, Hawk and Carver, when, um, you know, the thing about their like sort of ridiculous dynamic is like they're constantly encouraging every, each other to do things that are just so colossally stupid. And so here you have their antics in the high rises that happens. Right. Yeah. And this is like this. Honestly, this could this could qualify as a we love this show. But mm-hmm. do you think are, are the the creators, writers of The Wire, are they asking too much of the audience in terms of believing that three cops, two of which are white guys, would go rolling up to the projects, the high rises at 2 a.m. with the intent of cracking some heads just fucking because. This case isn't shit off. I know it. We're dancing around with this motherfucker. Typing shit out. Taking pictures of assholes in hats. What the fuck is that? It's bullshit. I say we go down there right now. Right fucking now. We go into those towers and we let them know. <laughs> I'm serious. You gotta let these motherfuckers know who you are. You coming? I'm with you. Cough. What the hell? Still. Are we buying this thing? I ain't never seen it. You know what I mean? Me like, neither. like that that late, and I think that look, I, that late to go in there that late in that type of situation with just the three of them, no backup, real no reason. I just don't know in too many situations where that would even be like a thing, and that's why in that scene I was incredibly i was ecstatic when the projects struck back oh i'm saying oh here. my god i was god. like stone their asses <laughs> when the project struck back in that scene it was legitimately like fucking captain america catching the goddamn hammer i'm like yeah let's get them you know what i mean because at that point there was no police being police work being done there was no substantive reason for them to be down there they were essentially down there just to harass people and that's also the scene uh where you know hawk and carver did that was stupid but we learned just at that point how unhinged prez Belusky was move shitbird i ain't doing nothing really i got nothing for you Who are you gonna eye fuck now, huh? Ah! Are you serious? Oh, lead on my car? Lead on my car. Get your shit off my car. What the fuck's the matter with you? Like how absolutely unhinged he was, but no, I, I completely agree. I just can't see um a situation in any place that I've ever understood to where you're going to go down to the heart of one of the worst projects in the middle of the night just to fuck with people, just the three of y'all. If it's yeah. not a, bu- if it ain't no backup, if it ain't no reason to be there, which is kind of a weird thing. I mean, and granted, look, I realize that the way that they are constructing both uh, Herc and Carver are to be the dumbest people that you like think of a dumb person and then give them a badge. Like they're, that's Word. what they want us to kind of think about them in general. So there's some part of you that's like, yeah, they actually are stupid enough to have a few beers and think that this is actually a good idea. But even for total meatheads like them, I'm thinking like, 
I don't know what about that plan would actually make sense to even some some fools like them. Yeah. We'll probably close this episode out here uh, with who won the episode. But before we get to that, I got some really awesome trivia related to uh, Presbyluski that we were just talking about. All right. Mm-hmm. So Presbyluski, he is, this is a fun fact. You can, again, tell at parties. The only cop who fired his weapon this whole series was Presbyluski. That what? That fired his weapon for the entire series? The only one. Presbyluski's the only cop that fired his weapon. Wait, Boom. wait, 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 wait. How could that fucking be? He's the only one. And he the, fired his weapon three times. Do you remember the three times that he fired his I weapon? Think that I, I think that I do. He fired his weapon earlier this episode where he shot the weapon into the wall. Boom. He fired his weapon when he ends up uh, killing a black police officer, which kind of leads to him leaving the force later on. Yeah. Uh, like that's in a later season. That's number two. Yep. That's number two. Um, they have him shooting up his car, but we don't see that. We just discussed the, the, the third time or one of the three times. Oh, one of the in, three the, t- in the projects. In the projects. He's the only one that fires his weapon in that scene. Because right. he fires, fires it like up in the air. But yes, mm-hmm. that is the case. Prismaluski, only officer to fire a weapon the whole time in the wire. That is fucking... Now, look, I'm not going to lie to you. Most of the trivia shit that I hear, I'm like, ah, fuck with that. That is actually a fucking shocking piece of trivia. I never thought about that. Yeah, that's yeah. Ass- absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's true. Wow. And and, and the other, uh, other little tidbit I have for those who watched... A little bit, uh, and Van, you notice all too well, in addition to Hollywood often overpaying for free shit, okay, Mm -hmm. and doing shit like that, the other thing that Hollywood is also majorly guilty of is inconsistencies. So everybody who watched episode two, um, go back and peep the squad car that hurt Carver and Prince Belusky drive to the projects that they ultimately throw shit at, do light on fire, all that other shit. Then peep what that car looks like when it's been destroyed. Different cars, not the same car. Mm, oh, yeah. You know, I can get alert. that. I can get that one because you're not going to destroy a perfectly good car. You're probably going to take a bombed out car and do it all the time. But yeah, but I'm not going to lie. I'm still recovering from the, from the press. Blues fact that pres- I'm, of all I'm the trying people, to if you think- just said, you know what? I'll give you 20 bucks. Guess the person that, that's the only person to shoot their gun this entire time. You would not have guessed Press Belusky. <laughs> you would think it would be somebody else. But if you think about it, we never saw McNulty do it. We never yeah. saw like we saw them pull their guns plenty of time, but we never actually saw them shoot at anybody. But when you when you look at it, it's smart. Um, and there's even a scene when I think McNulty or one of them is talking, and it's like, you know, I've ever actually had to fire my service weapon this many times and all of that stuff like that. It's like I've only ever pulled it once with the intention of using it. And in a lot of these other cop shows, when they showed the cops banging it out with criminals all the time and stuff like that, that's really sort of unrealistic. You don't see that very, very, you don't see that very much. Cops can normally count on one hand the amount of times they've actually shot their guns. Uh, hopefully those numbers go down even further. But um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's it's an it's an it, it is an interesting fact, but it's it's one that probably lends itself to the authenticity of the show. Yeah, and and not only that, I think maybe 
and I don't know if we're giving David Simon too much credit here and Ed Burns, but I wonder if it was intentional in the sense that he wanted the show not to be so much about the violence. I mean, it's about, it's, it's a violent, it, the violence is highlighted in this show, but just not from the standpoint of giving getting everybody all juiced up and excited about, you know, cops punching people and, you know, that part of it to get too yeah. distracted by the action of being a police officer. So no, I, I wonder, yeah. yeah, I wonder if it was, it was done on purpose. All right. Final topic. Uh, Van, who did you think won this episode? Prez Belusky. Mm. I tell you, Prez Belusky had a Zion Williamson-like debut into the wire. He had a ridiculously high... I mean, I wouldn't say he had a high he usage had, he rate. He 20 and 10. But, <laughs> he had, but, but think about it. The first time... I think the first time you see him, he firing the gun, right? Like, you introduce to him firing the gun in a scene that's all around him. The next scene, uh, you have him down there in the projects. He is the focal point of these different situations. And also, you get in that scene a lot of, and when we talk about Father's Away uh, later, we already did that one, but there's another Father's Away later moment when he actually assaults the kid. But it's a double Father's Away later. It's one because it's going to be a a, a, um, a racial, a racially tinged police incident that's going to eventually end his tenure with the police department. But even also, it's the first time we see him doing what's eventually going to be his life work, which is interacting with a kid. Like d- the way he deals with Duquan when Duquan comes by the school uh, later on. I think that's in season five, just the amount of heart he has, the amount of caring that he has for his students. It's completely not existing in this scene right here as he basically bats this kid for no reason. He doesn't see anything in the kid. So, you know, with that entire thing, the they set up very early on. Now, maybe they did it on purposely, or maybe it was Empire Strikes Back, George Lucas, who knows? Uh, but it's he has very pivotal moments in this episode and it's his first one. So I think that he won the episode. Uh, that's a good call um, for sure. Um, my pick for who won the, this episode would be Daniels actually, because mm. Daniels um, after getting this detail, if you think about the amount of shit that was heaped in his direction and he was still able to navigate it in a way without pissing anybody off. We're talking about best scenes, um, but one of the, uh, one of the uh, great scenes as well in, in this episode, um, which I would say overall, like when you sometimes you judge a, a series based off from the pilot episode to uh, the next episode, the improvement. And if you mm-hmm. think about it, and and this is not to say that the pilot episode was like bad in any regard, the level of improvement from pilot episode to this one is pretty significant. Really? You know, it's pretty significant. Yeah, because I think the dialogue, I think the story comes together differently. Like in, in the in pilot, like any pilot episode, you're just trying to lay everything out. You just to say, okay, here's some of your players. Now we're solidifying the roster. Now we're mm. seeing who the starters are. Now we're seeing who's coming off the bench. And so from that standpoint, it just took a tremendous leap in terms of advancing the story. One of the scenes that is one of the best scenes, but also to your point, a great reflection of, of real life is the scene between Daniels and his wife when he is 
you know, the, that was one thing that was always really interesting, even after they were not together anymore. Like his consigliere was still his ex-wife or, mm-hmm. you know, and wife at the moment. And when she told him, you know, the game is rigged, you cannot lose if you do not play. Because right. he's trying to figure out how do I navigate all these different agendas and yet still try to achieve police work on top of that, making the uh, making the brilliant decision <laughs> to go and get Sidnor from the other department in exchange for keeping Presbaluski, which obviously right. later on became a, a, a major key. I mean, some of this is as the, the next few episodes develop, you see that while he definitely has some humps in, in his detail, there's he also has some really good officers in terms of, you know, major crime. So I thought his ability to handle this politically and even gaining the respect within his unit was huge. Mm. And nobody probably had more things to juggle than him. And I thought he came out of it about as well as could be expected when you think about all the shit that was on his plate. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of the episode that formed Daniels' character. This is where we know that he is a convicted, conflicted, um, sort of a, a player in this entire game. He believes in what he's doing. He believes in trying to make rank. Daniels is on that track from the beginning to get to where he eventually got, which is the top of the Baltimore um, Police Department, if only for a brief time. Uh, but he also, there was enough in him somewhere that he would be willing to do what was right Uh in the grand scheme of things, if it all came down to it. And that's kind of the beginnings of that right now is because he's doing what a lot of characters in The Wire uh, don't do regarding the systems and the structures that they're in. He's asking questions. You know, he's asking questions like, how should I navigate this? What should I do in this situation? Like, he wants to know um, how he can affect things to get the best outcomes. And that kind of starts in this one. So, yeah, that's actually a really good call as far as Daniels is concerned. Yeah, and we'll, um, maybe next episode, we'll take a, a deeper dive into who Daniels is. Um, but for now, uh, that's all we got for episode two. Uh, the detail um, coming up on the the next episode of Way Down in the Hole, we'll break down episode three, which is called The Buys. A uh, lot of good stuff to look forward to in that one, including really episode three is about fallout because there's a certain yeah. fallout to their antics in the project, uh, including uh, a fate that Presbaluski faces, um, as well as, the emergence of the publicity fallout and how the police department itself, a lot of things that they're up against. And in a way, I think this next episode is, it's such a realistic portrayal of what happens when it comes to police brutality, how it's handled. Mm. And for that matter, you know, even how it's perceived within the department. And we also will see in the next episode, the police getting a deeper look gathering good intel on who Avon Barksdale, who up until this point has been a mystery man to into who he will, really is. So a lot of good shit we have to dive in for episode three. Uh, but for now, we leave you um, with all these great thoughts and opinions about it. Uh, Van, uh, any any more to report on Homeboys from Outer Space? I didn't know if you had an update for us, you know. No, nah, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, the, the, the update is, hey, like what you like. And don't let people with big platforms on Twitter bully you into not liking the shit that you like. I'll see y'all next time. All right. You're such a Karen. <laughs>